Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am Gabriel Matthews, your host for this month's broadcast. This month, we'll be discussing and unpacking the ramifications West Dayton faces as nine public schools are at risk of indefinite closure. In a December 2017 press release, Dayton Public Schools announced a need to right-size their schools, indicating that some schools run with student occupancy rates below a 70% threshold. Schools found to be under capacity, which was defined by 45% occupancy and lower, by Dayton Public Schools include Dayton Boys Prep Academy, Wogaman Middle School, Westwood Elementary School, Edwin Joel Brown Middle School, Middledale High School, Meadowdale Elementary School, Rosa Park School, World of Wonder, and Innovative Learning Center. The risk facing each of these schools arises following the closure of Good Samaritan Hospital and Aldi's food store in West Dayton, demonstrating rapid disinvestment in that community, otherwise known as Black Dayton, and investment in Dayton's downtown as developers are offered tax breaks for the construction of new properties in Dayton's downtown district. Joining us today is the powerhouse husband and wife duo, Zakia Sankara Jabbar and Hashim Jabbar. Zakia serves as national field organizer for the Dignity in Schools campaign and is co-founder of Racial Justice Now. And Hashim serves as executive director of Racial Justice Now. Thank you for joining us both. Thank you for having us on And Zakia, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us why the Dayton Public School System has targeted these nine schools and why it's important that they remain open? Well, I think that it has everything to do with the ongoing plan to change the demographics of the community in Dayton. Um, gentrification is what many people know it by now. We've seen these things happen in other communities, and so Dayton is just maybe 10 or 15 years later, but they're doing sort of the same exact plan. So. You know, the underutilization argument is actually an old argument. The Opportunity to Learn campaign, it already did infographics, already did the research on it, so we were able to use that to push back on the district on, with the utilization argument. So, and of course, with everything else that you named in the preface, like the, the, the hospital closing, the mental health facility, all of those different things are designed to drive out the demographic of West Dayton and drive them out of the community so that developers and other people can come in and buy the properties at dirt cheap and change the demographics of the city. There's been a couple of updates um, since that December press release, and Hashem can definitely go into a lot more detail. Uh, because of so much pushback from Racial Justice Now and other community organizations in the city, the school district has now laid out a three-year plan ultimately to do the same thing. They still have their eyes set on the same nine schools. Instead of closing them all in one year, they're going to spread it over three years. So that was the decision made on December 20th. And I'd like to uh, provide some context. It's very important. A small city like Dayton, Ohio, is really off the radar. Uh, Many of us know about D.C. and Baltimore and Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Oakland, some of these larger cities that are uh, out in the forefront of people's minds and knowledge right. in the press, but it's Midwest cities and smaller cities that don't get the same coverage. And so what we've been trying to do and working hard to do is to bring this information uh, to the forefront so that everybody knows and, and create that possibility of slowing down. Um, it's genocide, quite honestly, is what it is. But Dayton, Ohio is a smaller version of Detroit. 
years ago, Dayton, Ohio was considered a city of a thousand factories. And of course, like Detroit, it is, it's more like a factory and a half now. And so the population has significantly decreased. The uh, economics has significantly dried up. And of course, uh, just like everything else, it disproportionately affects the black community. Um, mm-hmm. Additionally, Dayton is what we call a hyper-segregated city, meaning that 80% or more of one specific race lives on the west side of Dayton, a.k.a. black Dayton, mm-hmm. and then 80% or more of the white race live on the east side of Dayton. And so when you ask why are these nine schools targeted, um, that's a great question as we, you know, look at what is being brought in the public realm, but also supply some analysis. And so all of the schools who are on the west side of Dayton, a.k.a. Black Dayton, so we have to ask the question of why. Right. You know, why are all the schools on the black side of Dayton? The kid talked about the occupancy rate, and with that argument was false. Our National Partners the Advancement Project put together a letter with us that's up on, the, on our website on rjinohio.org stating that uh, they did the calculations based upon the uh, occupancy and based upon the capacity of the schools. And we found that that argument that the school board and the major appointed task force was putting forward was incorrect, false, and uh, quite honestly, just misleading. And so, again, back to that question, why are these schools on the uh, west side of Dayton, all nine of them, you know, proposed to be closed? Why those specific schools? And we can't help but to look at the question of race, that these schools are uh, 80%, 90% black. These are all black children. Mm-hmm. These are all black families. These are all black mothers and fathers um, that have to deal with this. Um, the hospital closure is in the West Dayton. The mm-hmm. uh, mental health facility is in West Dayton. The uh, school closures are in West Dayton. The, all of these are all in West Dayton. So, again, back to that question, why these specific schools? And we can't help but look at race. There was a Kerwin Institute study done in partnership with the county that Dayton is in, Montgomery County, that stated that the uh, it was an opportunity uh, study to find out the level of opportunity in regards to education, in regards to food, in, in regards to employment, and other factors. Right. Uh, it studied what kind of opportunities were available for those residents. And this opportunity map found that the least opportunity was provided to those in West Dayton. The same area where all those institutions are closing and these proposed schools are being closed already had the least opportunity, according to the Kerwin Institute and the Public Health Department of the Montgomery County, Ohio. That's very interesting. I, I know that in doing the background reading, it, it just seemed unclear to me whether or not Dayton had taken steps to even improve enrollment. So, you know, it, it just kind of speaks to the volume at which, you know, the occupancy claim uh, was very faulty. Um, and then has there ever been, I know one notion that could probably arise is, you know, why close all nine schools as opposed to combining some of the ones that are already in West Dayton? I, like, has that ever come up in any circles that, you know, are involved in the movement against this? or That's a part of the process that's been laid out because, uh, again, to really put it into context, Dayton, Ohio has been top 10 in the nation since the 90s mm-hmm. of uh, charter school proliferation. So even though it is a small city, it is uh, leading the nation greater than 90% of all the other cities out there, leading the nation in the amount of charter schools per capita. So this has really been a part of a long-term plan in which we've been patient 
because many of those charter schools are, again, in West Dayton. They're not uh, performing better than the public schools. They're taking the public school mm-hmm. dollars. They're offering less services. They're not accepting all students. They're able to, to cherry pick. Uh, the Dayton Public Schools has to provide transportation, so it puts a, additional strains on the bus system. And so that's a, a part of that background context of why these nine schools, but also the possibility of combining them. And so they did present a three-year plan, and so that, that is the first step uh, in, the, in the first year to combine uh, Valerie, which is one of the elementary schools, with Meadowdale Elementary School, K-8, through eight, I believe it is, and they're going to send some of those children from Meadowdale back to their home schools. So that's uh, part of the plan. But again, that's their first step in which we've been very patient, it seems to me, that they're, uh, again, waiting to see the kind of fight the community and others will put up over these next couple of years. One other thing I'll add, Gabe, they also put it on the community to raise the numbers in the building. So Advancement Project found that out of all the nine schools, only one actually was under-enrolled, and that was Dayton Boys Prep. So only one out of the nine schools was actually under-enrolled. What the superintendent said was that, you know, they would leave those other schools open for this year, but that this would have to be a year where parents and other community members would have to work. They would have to work. I mean, look, listen at the language. They would have to work to get the enrollment up in those particular schools. So it's not that, that the district is going to actually spend dollars and do things to change and make the schools more attractive to parents, but that parents that are already there and community members that have pushed so hard for them not to close our schools, the way that they respond to us is like, oh, okay, well, if you don't want us to close the schools, then you all put, you all do a recruitment campaign, basically. In addition to that, one of the main issues that came out when we had the uh, mayor-appointed task force meetings was that one of the main reasons that parents and others were leaving the school district is because of customer service. And so that parents and others were getting treated poorly. They did not find that their um, issues were being addressed. They don't they didn't find that they were being treated respectfully. And so that was a big part of why they left the district. And the, uh, the new superintendent has not put forth any plan or publicly to uh, correct the customer service issues. So, yeah, the parents can say, sure, come on here to the, back to Dayton Public Schools, but how will they be treated when they come back, knowing that they've already stated the, or the main problem is how they are treating the parents and students and others when they are there. Concerning kind of placing responsibility on the community for enrollment, what is the suspension and expulsion rates among the West Dayton schools that are closing? And the reason I'm asking is because it feels to me like there's a um, an argument kind of from the DPS side that is coming from just kind of like kids aren't going to school because either the community is not motivating them to do so, which is a deficit type of argument. So yeah. would you happen to know, like, you know, what the suspension and expulsion rates are? And then what are your thoughts on just where this argument for community responsibility is coming from? So as far as the suspension and expulsion rate, I don't have the specific data points for the nine schools specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, how these things are after all the hard work that Racial Justice Now had done, you know, to make the changes in the school district, like implementing restorative justice, getting the ban on pre-K suspensions, suspensions have actually crept up every year, and they're still very much disproportionately handed out to black students, and more specifically, black students who have been identified with emotional disturbance, which is a 
indicator for students who have disabilities. So that is one of the things that we've been very concerned about. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that there's been three superintendents in two and a half years now. So the leadership that we had relationships with that actually made the right changes was actually uh, booted out, including some of the board members, like right after we got those changes. So we never saw the full implementation of the things that we fought for. And it's been an uphill battle with this new board, with this new superintendent that's very corporatized. They're very corporate focused. They don't even believe in having conversations with the school, with the uh, community. It's been very difficult to even get a meeting with this new superintendent versus before. We had the superintendent's cell phone number. I mean, we could get her almost any time. That's a change in what we're seeing. And we're seeing basically, unfortunately, Gabe, is back to business as usual where we're dehumanizing our most mm -hmm. vulnerable students, where we're kicking out the students that we need to be making sure that we keep in school for mm -hmm. all the reasons why we fight to keep young people in school. So to answer that question, we see, we have seen every single year that those numbers continue to creep up after we saw a big dip. We saw a big dip in suspensions um, in Dayton Public Schools, and now they're creeping up. How long ago was the dip in suspensions compared to when they began to rise? It's 2018 now, so about four years. We're into the fourth year. I know there's a 16-person task force created by Mayor Nonwali of Dayton, Ohio, and they've had a, a series of meetings um, within the past few weeks. Uh, Hashim, can you tell us just kind of what those meetings have been like for Racial Justice Now, what Racial Justice Now has been doing to kind of, you know, prepare uh, for those meetings, and where do you feel the momentum kind of shifting? The task force was put together by Mayor Nan Whaley, who does not have uh, jurisdiction over the school board. She's a uh, a mayor, however, she's actually, uh, we don't have a strong mayor government, so she's actually a fifth city commissioner. And so she put together a task force, uh, reaching beyond her reach, um, put together a task force of business interests, uh, one person who runs a charter school, others that are, um, sit on the chamber of commerce and that don't live inside the city, don't live inside of West Dayton, and they decided to come together to give a recommendation to the school board, which was never made public. So we have no idea what the recommendation was to the school board because these, this was a very non-transparent process. We went about hosting a few public meetings. There's a, a man named David Esrati who is actually uh, in the process of suing them over violation of the Sunshine Laws, which are laws in Ohio that protect meetings that are supposed to be in the public. Uh, there were time periods when the task force was by themselves unavailable to the public. Mm -hmm. um, they took a tour of various schools, and they did not allow people um, on the bus with them in a public manner while they were meeting and traveling, going to the different schools. And, and I saw it as like it, it was as if they were shopping. You know, there, there's a, a law that would allow these schools that are uh, possibly closed to be handed over to a charter school for little to nothing. And so this has been a very problematic issue. Um, the community had a lot of questions that were not answered during the process. The community had a lot of disagreement with how this task force was put together and how there was a lack of community representation, lack of parent representation on this task force. 
Um, and so the whole process was very disturbing to the community. But this school board, very clearly manipulated by the mayor, just been a, a shameful process, a very sad process when you are a person that keeps the children first. And to know that the way that this uh, board is being manipulated, the children are definitely not being put first. And so the uh, the process of the meetings, uh, again, a very sad state. We don't know what conclusion they came to. The uh, recommendation was never made public. Um, they met uh, a few times in the public. We are very sure that they met other times in the, having their own conversations. But uh, what they said to the board, the, the board did not uh, share directly with the community. So have the current meetings that have happened, I guess, within the past few weeks, they've been mostly behind closed doors, or have those opened up to the public? And if they have opened to the public, has there been a difficulty accessing them or kind of being able to arrive to them for the community? Initially, the uh, attempted to have closed meetings and not allow the public, but again, due to community pressure. Mm-hmm. Communities are able to force them to open up the meetings to the public, and again, there has been a lawsuit filed. Uh, I think there was uh, three public meetings that they had, and then they went about the process to do the same, what many call the dog and pony show. Um, they do the same process where they'll go to two schools in the community, and then they'll ask for the community's input, write on a post-it note, answer a few questions, and they can kind of check that box as if they did it. You know, and it's the same process they do um, whenever decisions are being made. And when the decision comes out, it's clear that there's a really lack of response to uh, community concerns. And I'm wondering if, if either one of you can kind of speak to the costs that you see that closing these schools would result in. There's a, a lot of costs seen and not seen, a lot of expenses taken, relocation of the children, uh, rerouting of buses, the relocation of students that were in their home school that now uh, have to attend uh, a different school, uh, the relocation of teachers, uh, the resources that teachers um, have at their home school that they're now to be transitioning to new schools with new principals and new administration. There's been a great concern over black administrators, whether they will keep their positions or not. Uh, when they go to a, a new school, will they be uh, relocated far away from the students that they have been working with? And so there's a, a number of costs that are, are seen and unseen. Um, the school that is considered uh, called Valerie Elementary School, they say that it will be knocked down. And there's been a pattern of what happens in Dayton is that the same business person with business interests, they come and do the construction of buildings. And there's a lot of money in construction, millions on top of millions of dollars. And so the demolition will be taking place, but who will be doing the demolition? Will it be people that live inside the city and that will create uh, economic opportunity and advancement for the people inside the city? Or will it be done by people who live outside of the city who will take that money and add to the coffers of the suburbs of Dayton? And so there's a number of things to weigh and measure. There's been concern about minority contractors and whether they get their fair share of dollars of, of construction as well as demolition. And so those are other costs that have to be weighed and measured. So there's a number of costs that are, are looked at in this scenario. Yeah, unfortunately, like the, the rest of the country, when we have these massive school closings, you also have a massive layoff of black teachers. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing black teachers also being pushed out. That hasn't been the framing until the We Choose campaign with Journey for Justice, who've actually called that out explicitly. 
And the unfortunate thing in it is, especially in West Dayton, most of the black teachers that teach in Dayton public schools teach on the West Side. Mm-hmm. Um, so with this three-year plan of them closing schools, this is also a three-year plan where these same black teachers will be the ones who will be displaced. What has the black teacher community, you know, kind of said about uh, these school closings? And, you know, is there any, uh, I guess, word for what will happen, uh, like wherever these teachers would go? Would they go to a school in a different district or a different part of Dayton? Or, um, you know, would they relocate? Has there been any kind of talk of movement among, like, the black teacher population in West Dayton? I haven't heard a whole lot of them organizing. I know that they haven't, like, split off and formed a little small, like, unions for themselves like you've seen in other communities where they're, like, a progressive educator caucus or something. They haven't done that. They're not as organized, but I think that there are, like, conversations that happen, right? But they aren't as organized as other communities. And so... The only thing I guess I can say to that is I I can assume that they are going to be looking for other things or looking for other positions in other places, Uh, especially since there's a larger timeline now. They don't have to worry about the school, all of the schools being closed this year. So that that does give them somewhat of leeway and ability to kind of make plans for themselves personally. But I also don't, I feel like this is not a good service for the children who are left in those schools is because there's going to be a lot of shifting of staff in and out of those buildings because people, you know, they still think that, you know, after the end of these three years, the schools are still going to close. So you're going to still have where the schools are not going to be as safe and sound, where there's staff that's going to be there, staff that they've known for years. I have a feeling that, you know, as soon as people find other jobs or even if they relocate, right, that's going to leave that particular building without a teacher. And that's actually already a problem in some of the schools having long-term subs because there's been an issue and it's been an issue for many years and it doesn't get talked about very much. But a lot of the white teachers who teach in East State, they actually refuse. It's not even in their union contract. The district just capitulates to them. Like they could force them to teach in another building if they wanted to. The district administration, they just don't do it. That's been a past practice that they've done outside of the union contract, is that they haven't forced teachers to move when they've expressed an interest not to. And so there's plenty of teachers who could fill buildings in West Dayton that just refuse to teach in West Dayton, and it's allowed by the district administration. I'm curious to know kind of whether or not, I know the teachers, it's unclear whether or not they're organizing, but... Are some of the students organizing? And I know that, you know, some of the schools vary, you know, among elementary, high school, and and middle school. So I don't know how young is too young to organize. But, you know, I'm just curious to know if some of the students from these schools, or hopefully all of them, have organized or, um, you know, if is racial justice now kind of, you know, working with other groups to organize some of the young people to, you know, kind of protest for their school to remain open? Most of the schools are elementary schools on the list, and mm-hmm. there's only one high school. Um, there have been some outspoken students um, in regards to the school closings um, that came to the realization that many of them were seniors and would be leaving, but what would happen to their younger siblings? Mm-hmm. And so there have been numerous uh, young scholars uh, outspoken, but the uh, grassroots movement, um, again, is largely um, around parents 
primarily because most of the students have been younger students. But if you go to Racial Justice Now's Facebook page, um, going back into uh, January, you will find some outspoken students there uh, speaking on behalf of their uh, fellows and their siblings at uh, Meadowdale High School uh, not wanting to see their school closed. I guess, is there one final meeting happening, uh, I guess, with this task force? And I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what's the, the scope of the task force? Is it just education-specific, and will it still be around, you know, after this fight concludes? Uh, again, this task force was put together very abruptly by the mayor, um, Dayton Daily News did a uh, information request and found out that the mayor actually uh, wrote a news, <laughs> news uh, press release about this task force that she had actually had it planned with a school board member uh, all the way back in January. Um, and so this was largely a manipulation to the Democratic mayor. So she has been manipulating this whole situation, but that task force was put together for the purposes of giving a recommendation to the school board on school closures. And so the task force came together and actually it, it ended. And again, it was very uh, abrupt, very not clear on uh, what the recommendation was, uh, what was said to the school board members at its conclusion. And so there's a lot of mystery. And so I guess at any given point in time when the mayor feels like manipulating uh, the school board or decisions there, other school districts, and she uh, can put together this task force because she has a, uh, a new superintendent that's uh, willing to allow her to uh, take those type of actions. But the task force uh, came together very abruptly, and it seemed to end very abruptly. And so, there's, again, a lot of mystery surrounding it. Uh, if it pops up uh, again, you know, um, that's very possible. So I know that the current superintendent is an interim superintendent, and like, is there any, I guess, news as to who would kind of step up to, I guess, own that role indefinitely? And are there, I guess, candidates for that role that have a better vision for improving, you know, the schools of West Dayton, not so much closing up on them and not giving up on them, but just kind of investing in them and improving them? So, unfortunately, we have hired, again, very abruptly, quickly, without consulting the community, uh, hired uh, Elizabeth Lolly as the new superintendent. She was actually brought on by the last superintendent within the last year or so from uh, Middletown, Ohio, as the curriculum director. And because uh, Rhonda Cord, the former superintendent, because she left in an abrupt manner, we made Elizabeth Lolly the interim superintendent. From our understanding, she has very limited to no experience uh, running a school district of this size. Um, uh, her uh, last position had ended uh, very quickly, and so there's a significant question of her uh, ability to run the school district, but the school board has uh, abruptly and quickly, without a national search, without putting out any kind of search at all, decided to hire her as the new superintendent of schools. And so our concern is, uh, again, that uh, this is a manipulation of the mayor, uh, Nan Whaley, um, that she is reaching beyond her scope, um, that somebody, uh, Dr. Lolly, that can be easily influenced by her and her business community. Um, and so we see it very problematic the way that the school board is operating. Um, the mayor ran candidate of her choosing. She ran four at the last November election and was able to get three seated 
Um, and so they have a very strong position and are not taking a lot of input from their community, but uh, actually trying to downplay the forces that speak out against them. And so it's very challenging, distrustful time for the school district. And again, you know, being uh, children-centered, being black parent organizers, there's a lot of problems that our black families are, are facing in the city of Dayton around education in general. What resources is racial justice now kind of, you know, pulling from within the community to continue to push the message that, you know, these schools need to stay open, uh, you know, we need to invest in our kids of West Dayton, and we can't give up on them? Yeah, I think some of the partnerships were already there, is, and not just because of school closure. So keep in mind, all of this is happening at the same time, but because the community has been hit, you know, like with the haymaker, I mean, and one fell swoop, I mean... It was an announcement in December and January almost every week of something that was closing in West Dayton. So it kind of forced community members to come together. Our main partnership is with a group called Neighborhood Over Politics. And if you had an opportunity to watch the three-part miniseries that the Real News Network did, you would have saw them on part two and you would have saw us on part three just describing everything that we've been talking about here. Neighborhood Over Politics is our main partner in the city because they mainly focus on the city government and we've always focused on the school district. And so it was a natural partnership because we are very small grassroots organizations, you know, very little resources. So we're using our love and all of our ability in the community to organize our community, organize elders, um, NAACP, has come to the table for just a few meetings, but they haven't been very consistent. I would say for Racial Justice Now, specifically the relationships that Hashem has, he's formed partnerships with the new Greater Dayton Urban League, you know, working with some of those organizations that we hear about in other communities. But the main organizations that I would say that's putting up a fight and doesn't have political ties to the mayor, because Dayton is a small city and everything is done in a particular circle, that eventually gets back to her, we have more freedom, I would say, neighborhood over politics and uh, racial justice now has more freedom to really do the work that needs to be done in a way that's unapologetic to the powers that be in the city, if that makes sense. And so we can't leave out our national partners that have been supporting us in the investment project, of course, Community for Just Food Fund, the Journey for Justice. Alliance, Dignity and Schools campaign have been a, a great asset to take this message beyond the uh, borders of Dayton to let really the world know about some of the atrocities that are happening. As the key indicated, the mayor has a, a certain level of influence throughout the city um, and in the county, but we have worked to go beyond her reach. And that's why you see things like uh, relationships, um, the Advancement Project uh, presenting letters to the district talking about the inaccuracy of the uh, under-enrollment. Um, that's why you see uh, a dignity of schools campaign supporting our work and uh, Journey for Justice Alliance uh, supporting our work just as they fight against other school closings in other cities. If anyone else wanted to, you know, provide support and, you know, help bolster the resources for what Racial Justice Now is doing, like how would they be able to reach you? We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, our website is rjnohio.org. On Facebook, we're at uh, Racial Justice Now is our like page. You can like us there. Uh, we're on Twitter. It's uh, Racial Justice Now without the U. 
We're also on Instagram at Racial Justice Now. You can uh, donate to Racial Justice Now at rjnohio.org backslash donate. And there's a wealth of information uh, there on rjnohio.org about uh, the Food of Prison Pipeline, uh, education, justice in general, and about the work that we do at Racial Justice Now. I can be emailed at H-A-J-A-B-A-R at rjnohio.org. And um, there's a great wealth of information on rjnohio.org. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I am your host, Gabriel Matthews, the Program Assistant for Communities for Just Schools Fund. You can find us on Twitter at Just Schools, all one word. You can also visit our website at cjsffund.org. And you can join us at Instagram, also, at Just Schools. Thank you for joining me this month, and we look forward to seeing you again next month.